Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that in it we find uh, life. We find Jesus, the Son of God. We find hope and salvation and redemption. Um, and so I pray that as we look at Ephesians, that you would encourage our hearts and enlighten our minds and just drive us to Christ. Um, I thank you for everyone who's in this room and their willingness to come early and join us for Sunday school. So I pray that it would be a blessing to them. Um, just be with us as we study together in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 All right, let me read Ephesians chapter 4, verses 25 through 32. The Apostle Paul writes, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Those are, those are good words right there. Okay, so I just want to remind you, um, I think kind of central to the Bible is this idea of the new heart or the new self. And Ephesians has been talking about this. We, we, I, I reminded you of this last week, but I'll, I'll do it again. Um, go back to verse 22. It says, uh, actually, let's go back to 20. But that is not the way that you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness." So one of the things that I find so often in teaching is that you get pastors or, or people who are teaching and they're basically just telling people, use your will to be more moral. Stop doing bad things. And that's not actually the gospel. The gospel is you have been changed, so now live like you are. Does that make sense? Does that distinction make sense? Because it's exhausting to try and just keep doing more moral things. But it's not exhausting to live according to your nature. Does that make sense? Like, is it exhausting to try and be human? I mean, I know it's exhausting being human, so don't misunderstand. Is it exhausting to try and be human? Is that hard work for anybody? To just be human? No, I don't think so, right? That's what you are. Would it be exhausting for you to try and be a bird? Um, I saw this weird story of this guy who like thinks he's a dog, and so he bought this like twelve or fifteen thousand dollar dog suit, and he puts it on, and it looks super hot, and 
I mean, he looks like a border collie, and then he goes around in parks crawling around like a dog. Does that sound easy? It actually sounds really hard and hot and stuffy and expensive and like a ton of work because he's not a dog, okay? So the gospel is, you have been changed, so now do what is natural to you, right? Put off the old self that used to act this way. Put on the new self. Okay, so because all of that is true, then out of this reality that you are a child of God, you are redeemed, you are filled with the Spirit, you're not the old self anymore, you're the new self, um, you don't need to uh, live in this old way of living and thinking. Okay, you can actually live like Jesus. Make sense? Any questions on that? Okay. So then let's go down to verse 29 where we have been unpacking this. Let no... Oh, let me just remind you that the illustration I gave you last week, which is a software update versus a new operating system. Okay? A software update maybe gives you a little bit of upgrade here and there, maybe changes the fonts and the colors. It makes it look a little sleeker. Okay, that's a software update. But what's underneath all of that? It's the same old thing, okay? Whereas a totally new operating system, you've thrown out all of the old way of even doing the computer and you've put in a whole new system, okay? That's, that's what the gospel does for us. Does that make sense? Okay, so let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. Verse 29 is the first command, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. So what is corrupting talk? Notice real quick, go back to verse 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. So I want you to understand that if we're talking about corrupting talk, we've already talked about deceit, lying. So this is, I would say, another category. Okay, so Paul thinks it's necessary not to say merely don't lie to each other. But in addition to that, don't let any corrupting talk come out of your mouth. What's corrupting talk? Anything that's not edifying. Anything that is not edifying. So that's a very, very, very broad description. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth. What's your question? Yeah. To, to better you, right? So like, if I come to you and, and I'm teaching, I'm, I'm teaching you from the words to, like, to make you better, to make you more whole in understanding God, so that way you could be a better life for the world. Right? So if it's not edifying, it could be gossip, it could be something like anger, yeah, edifying has to do with encouraging, building up, blessing. Um, those kinds of things are, are wrapped up in the edifying. Okay, okay. But okay, so because you have stuff that's not in either category, just everyday stuff, you know, like sports, things like that. I mean, then they're, you know, they're not necessarily building up, but it's, right? Or are we... Yeah. So I don't think that this excludes neutral statements, right? Is it, is it, would the Bible say it's bad to walk outside and be like, it's sunny today? Like, that's just a statement of fact. 
Nothing wrong with that. Okay. Yes. Unless, of course, uh, when you're talking sports, you're a football fan and you never go to church on Sunday for the football season. You encourage your friends to stay home and watch it with you, right? Yes, I would agree with that. Or, or you're talking, well, how about this? Uh, you're watching football and you say, man, I, I, really, I really hope that that, uh, that quarterback today gets injured. That's actually a terrible thing to say, right? Like, you are actually wishing harm on somebody just for the sake of sport, right? So, but to be like, go Cardinals, yeah, that's fine, right? I mean, so I think that, that there's a category of sort of like neutral statements that just are totally fine. There's a statement of blessing, that's what we're supposed to seek for. And then there's certainly a statement that is corrupting that we are supposed to shun and turn away from, okay? Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. Okay, on a show of hands. Maybe I won't make you show your hands. I won't, I won't make a confession. In the last week, have you been guilty of any corrupting talk whatsoever? I mean, I would have to raise my hand, right? This is a, this is a, a very high ethic. Um, and I don't think... I really don't think Paul has in mind here bad words, although those things would probably be in the category of corrupting talk. But I, I shouldn't say probably. Those things would certainly be in the category of corrupting talk. But I think he has more in mind how we speak about and speak to one another, right? Um, and man, there's so many things that we could connect to this. You know, gossip is one that you mentioned. Slander, pessimism, anger. I think we judge each other to edify each other. Sure. Not to condemn, but to correct. Yeah, like to say something like, and I'll just use you as an example. Sorry, Juan. Juan, I know you're a follower of Jesus, so that kind of behavior just isn't becoming of you, right? I am making a judgment, but it's not like you dumb dumb. I can't believe you did that. It's let me point you back to Jesus, right? That's good. So there is a kind of judgment, a speaking judgment that can be a blessing and positive. There's also a kind that can be corrupting, for sure. Um, yeah, the way maybe as children that you speak to your parents, the way as parents that you maybe speak to your kids, the way you speak as husband and wife to one another, the way you speak about people who are not present. These are all things that would be included in this. Um, you know, one that tends to get heated in our culture right now is politics, right? As the political season ramps up, what kind of things do you let come out of your mouth regarding political views that are different than the ones that you hold? That's an important thing for you to think about. Um, what else? What am I missing? Okay, so let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up. So we want to speak words that bless people, not words that diminish people. We want to speak words that are life-giving and not um, you know, discouraging, those kinds of things. And Juan, I love how you brought it back to the word, because what is like the most what is the way that we can most build each other up as Christians? It is to offer one another what God's word says, the encouragement that comes from his word. The truth is like, 
man, God loves you. He died for you. You're precious in his eyes. He cares for you. Right? Um, Romans 8, verse 1, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Right? The devil wants to speak words into your mind that are discouraging and diminishing and hurtful. And actually the gospel says you're a beloved child of God through Jesus Christ. So probably the most, not even probably, the most edifying things that we can say to one another are the truths that are contained in God's word. And this is a good reason for us to know God's word so that we can bless one another by speaking it to each other. Um, What about this phrase, as fits the occasion? that it may give grace to those who hear. He says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Mine says according to their needs. Okay, that's good. So unpack that. What do you think that means? Yeah. I think everybody here was at church when I mentioned, or maybe obviously not Juan, but um, when I mentioned my brother, he had a family in his church who their three-year-old child drowned, tragically, right? And, um, you know, <laughs> uh, the Bible has verses in it that say, rejoice, and I tell you again, rejoice, right? But do you think that that fits the occasion you know, two hours, two days after this child has been lost and the family is grieving? I don't think so, right? It is true, and in certain settings, it's a blessing to hear, hey man, let me remind you, rejoice. But the Bible also says, weep with those who weep and mourn with those who mourn. Come on in, guys. So, as fits the occasion means, be discerning in the kinds of encouragement that you're offering to one another. Um, you know, another one that, that I think we hear a lot is, uh, I, I don't know, I'll just make up a silly example. Oh, yeah, I'll give, I'll give you an example. Um, l- imagine that I lost my job, which is weird because I guess I'm your pastor, but imagine for a moment that I lost my job. You, could, you might come to me and say words that you think are encouraging, like, oh, I lost my job once. I know how you feel. It will be okay. Okay, that, that's true, and maybe you mean it to encourage me, but that doesn't really fit the occasion, right? Probably what would be better is, man, I'm sorry, that's a really hard thing to go through. Let me pray for you. Is there anything you need? Does that make sense? Um, one of the things that we have a tendency to do as humans is we take other people's suffering and we immediately connect it to ourselves, and then we make it about ourselves mm-hmm. instead of just being present with people in their hurting. Because the goal of this, verse 29 says, is that it may give grace to those who hear. Um, so that, that's, that's what we are after. So let me unpack uh, a, a little bit more the corrupting talk. We already used some of these words, but gossip, slander, malicious words, reviling, filthy words. I mean, I'm some, some, sometimes surprised. You're hanging around people who are Christians and they're telling jokes and you're like, I don't think that that's honoring to Jesus. I don't think you should be saying that. Um, 
dishonest words, immoral, impure, blasphemous, lewd, uh, decadent, exaggerative, shameful, scandalous, boastful. Those are just some of the words. Could you explain blasphemous words? Yeah. Blasphemous words are words that speak untruth about God or that attribute to something other than God the glory and majesty of God. Um, honestly, saying something like the universe created itself from a big bang, that's a blasphemous statement because it's obviously true that it didn't happen that way. But typically we tend to think it's more salaciously intended than just that, right? So to say something like, uh, something like, honestly, um, you know, Jesus liked to hang out with tax collectors and sinners and prostitutes because he was one. Right, that is, it's salacious. Or what the blasphemy that we find in the Bible from uh, the Pharisees is, you do these miracles by the power of Satan because you are an agent of Satan. That's blasphemous. Is that helpful? Okay. I, I don't think that blasphemous words spoken in ignorance carry the same weight as blasphemous words spoken intentionally. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. Okay. Uh, was misusing uh, God's name be blasphemous? Like, you know how sometimes people say, like, use the uh, word God, like, looking, uh, or Jesus? Yeah, like when you hit your finger with a hammer and you're like, Jesus Christ! Like that? Yeah. Okay. Or sometimes even like, maybe, like, not even like um, conversations that are not uplifting whatsoever, but they mention the word Jesus or God. Like, yeah. Yeah, I would say that borders on blasphemy. And the reason is because you are using the name of God like a kind of curse word. <laughs> and so I would say that that does border on blasphemy. Yeah. And, I mean, we talked about that, but again, remember, so one of the things that I think is really interesting about the New Testament as opposed to the Old Testament is in the Old Testament you have a lot of do not, do not, do not, do not. In the New Testament it shifts, and it shifts because you're looking for behavior that flows out of the heart of Jesus, and so most of the commands become do, 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 right? Um, uh, so. We've got, instead of, you know, don't covet your neighbor's donkey, we have the command, love your neighbor, right? So here, uh, you've got verse 29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. That's the do not, but it's followed by do things that are building up, things that encourage, things that fit the occasion, that give grace to those who hear. So on that positive side, We've got maybe synonyms like constructive, honest, good, caring, pure, invigorating, blessing, praiseworthy, true, virtuous, helpful, humble, proper, joyful, kind, wholesome. Those are the kinds of things that we want to come out of our mouths. So ultimately, the command is not merely forbidding that bad things come out of our mouth. It's encouraging good things to come out of our mouth. 
Um, and here's one of the big reasons why. Luke chapter 6, verse 45 says, Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So I think I've told this story before. I probably told it lots of times. Jason, I'm sure, has heard it many times. But it always stands out to me as an illustration of this. I asked this girl in college to go out on a date with me to go get some ice cream. And for some reason, I let her drive. Why did I do that? Anyway, it's embarrassing. Um, she's driving down the highway. This is back in the sh- suburbs of Chicago, and we're on like the freeway. And uh, as we're driving, literally right across the median, right there, we see this car flip, hit the median and flip over. And I mean, it unfolds like right in front of us. And the first thing out of my mouth was, holy bleep. And the first thing out of her mouth was, dear Jesus, we pray for those people. We pray that they're okay. We pray that you would preserve their lives. And I was like, I'm never getting a second date. (laughs) Right? I mean, it's, it's a moment that has stood out to me my whole life because the first thing that came flowing from my heart was naughty words. The first thing that came flowing from her heart was turn to Jesus and plead for these people, right? Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Um, So what you say indicates a lot about what is in your heart. That's why this is so important. All right, verse 30. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. So I want to begin by uh, asking you, do you think the wind can feel grieved? Do you think the tide can feel grieved? So what is grief? If, If these things that are winds and tides and maybe spring and things like that can't feel grief what are we learning about the holy spirit in a verse like this yeah the holy spirit has feelings what else has feelings persons okay so i think we make the mistake because we think of god as father because the bible describes him that way right yahweh is father jesus actually gets a name and then we get to this weird kind of third part of the Trinity, or yeah, Trinity, and we just call him the Holy Spirit. But the Bible uses uh, first-person masculine pronouns, so it calls him he. And we get these kinds of passages that indicate that we're not dealing with some kind of force like wind or tides. We are dealing with a person. The Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. The Holy Spirit is God. And so he feels grief. And look closely um, here at the context. Verses 28 and 29. Actually, let's look at 29 and 31. So we're looking at the verses around this verse. And what do they, what kinds of things grieve the Holy Spirit? Quenching. You've got the word quenching in your Bible? No, I'm saying quenching. Quenching grieves the Holy Spirit. Can you unpack that? What does quenching mean? I think when you, um, when the Spirit is guiding a believer, or you know, uh, and and you, you don't, you, you withdraw from that, or you, you 
choose not to, God's telling you something and you don't speak up, or you, there's ways that you, I think, as, as a person can quench the spirit. In other words, to ignore or to go a different direction. Sure. So if the, if the, so the command that Jesus gave us was follow me, the power that he gave us to do that is the Holy Spirit. And so I think to some degree, I could restate what you're saying. If we refuse the power of the Holy Spirit, the prompting of the Holy Spirit to follow Jesus, we quench the Spirit that grieves the Spirit. Yeah, that's good. There's really something in this ethic that I, I want you to try and see here in Ephesians 4, 25 through 32. What do you notice about the Holy, like grieving the Holy Spirit in these verses? I'm okay with silence. I'm going to give you a minute. And it's, it's okay to not necessarily get the answer that I have in my mind. Sometimes it's frustrating when teachers do this because they're like, we know you have an answer, but we don't know what it is. There seems to be, in these verses, a particular aspect to what it means to grieve the Holy Spirit. Just looking at the surface, it looks like 29 kind of connects with uh, uh, 31, where the unwholesome gets broken down into um, bitterness, rage, anger, wrong, and slander, um, and form of malice. And then, like you said, so you don't do, but then do, and then be kind. So if you do what it says to get rid of the unwholesome talk, it gives the Holy Spirit personally. Yeah. It's almost like the Holy Spirit of God is trying to give you the, the, the guidance to walk by Christ, right? To, Amen. And then you're doing the opposite, and it's just grieving. Yes. Yes. That's good. You know, I have children and grandchildren, and when they do something that you know is wrong, you know they know it's wrong, it hurts you. Yeah. As a parent, so it's true. I think we hurt him because he's given us everything that we need to do better. Yeah. And to see us out here doing all these wrong things. Yeah. It's hurtful. It is. It's good. It's good. Well, I know as a father, when my son or others around me, they say, "This is what Christian is. This is what a Christian, a follower of Christ, is." And he's getting angry, or he's letting you know these things that it says not to do. That this is not the sign of somebody. So yeah, that that's that would be, you know, lowering the name of Christ. You know, it would be yeah. These are all all good answers. So, um, sin of any kind grieves the spirit of God, right? Because we're His children. He loves us. We're supposed to look like Him. He's given us the, these commands. It's pretty clear. So sin of any kind grieves the Holy Spirit. But do you know what the sin I think that grieves the Spirit most of all is? I would say sin of an interpersonal nature. Sin that violates the body. And here's why. Let's look at this together. Here's why I'm going to make this. Actually, uh, go back to ver first before we do this. Go back to verses 13 through 16 of this chapter. Because one of the themes of this chapter is, actually go back to verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up, there's that same idea, right? Speak only what is good for building up, don't grieve the Holy Spirit, 
for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith. So, and then go down to verse 15, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint. You see this? So what I'm getting at is, don't misunderstand, all sin grieves the Spirit of God. If you have been given this new heart that is the heart of Jesus and you've been transformed, then to live contrary to that is grieving to the Spirit. But let's look at another passage. Go to John chapter 17. Um, somebody willing to read um, John 17, 20 through 26, nice and loud for us. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through, the, through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent, sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they, may, that they may be the one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me, and I love them, even as you love me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and those know that you have sent me. I may know to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I so this is a profound prayer that Jesus prays he actually prayed it for you the the text is very clear because Jesus is praying in John chapter 5 John chapters well he's teaching in John, John chapters 15 through 17 but in 17 he begins to pray and at first he prays for his disciples and then he says not only do I pray for them but I pray for those that will come after them that's you Jesus literally, when he was on earth, prayed for you. And this is the prayer. He prayed that you would be part of the body of Christ, that you would be unified, that you would be in him like he's in the Father. And I realize this is some kind of deep spiritual language that takes some reflection. And, and what's interesting about this is this comes at the end of his kind of long teaching where he's saying to the disciples, Hey guys, I just want you to know I'm about to go away. But when I go, it's going to be better for you. Because when I go, I'm going to leave you the helper, the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is going to put my life inside of you. And at the end of that teaching, he then prays this. And so this is what the Holy Spirit does. This is one of the key works of the Spirit is to unify the people of God. So what I'm arguing at this point is to grieve the Holy Spirit more than anything else is not merely just sin. It is the sin of interpersonal dysfunction in the body of Christ. When you speak poorly to somebody and you don't build them up, that grieves the Holy Spirit. 
when you have bitterness in your heart towards another person and you've got wrath and anger and malice, that grieves the Holy Spirit. When you don't love one another and have tenderheartedness and kindness towards one another, that more than anything grieves the Holy Spirit. Because you are separating what God is unifying. Does that make sense? Any other thoughts or comments on that? And I think this is really, really important for us in the culture that we live in because we live in a culture that is very narcissistic and self-centered. And we even think about our relationship with God in terms of just my own sin. And that's important. You should do that. But one of the things that is fundamental to God about his body that he is making is that we would be in right relationship with one another, not just right relationship with God. And so I think a lot of times we think, oh, yeah, I have some sin in my life. It's sin, you know, between me and God. But actually of equal importance is the sin between you and another brother, another sister in Christ. That needs to be reconciled. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think that will also speak for uh, some people that are against, like, the idea of being part of the church. Um, you know, because where is, where can I exercise all these things? I cannot do them. I mean, I can, what, on my own? Yeah. You know, versus I think when we are in a group, like, there is an opportunity to exercise what we say to the Absolutely. And this, in particular, I think, belongs to believers. Yes. Non-believers try to live by this. Right. Because they will want out their kids. Don't say this or whatever, right? Yeah. Uh, but it's like a, a different. That's good. Yep. Absolutely. This is the kind of life that should define the people of God. And, um, man, wouldn't it be so much easier if God just... You know, did this work in our heart and then let us kind of do our own spiritual thing? No, he, he pushes us together into this community. I, I'm sure I've said it before, but there's a joke among pastors where we'll sometimes say to one another, man, ministry would be so easy if it weren't for all the people. <laughs> right? But that, that is ministry. There is no ministry apart from people. It is people. And, uh, and so God wants our unity and he wants us to love one another. And um, really, I mean, John will even say, you cannot love God unless you love your brother. So, yeah. So, just a, what about theological differences in the church and the body? And that causes division sometimes. Yeah. And I know sometimes, I mean, you're supposed to I mean, ruffle people's feathers, but ultimately the idea is to get to the truth. I'm just curious because yeah. people say, well, don't do that because that's going to that's gonna cause division in the church. Or don't say those things. And yeah. I'm just curious as to what part of that might play. So I would take you back to something I said last week, which is the verse from James. I think it's James chapter 4 that says the, uh, the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. So I have found that a lot of times in my own fighting for really important theological truths, you know what I'm really fighting for? My pride. Me, right? My pride. My position, what I think is right. And I'm not doing it in a way that's open-minded or humble or quick to listen and slow to speak. I'm more just like convinced and I'm gonna you know, beat you up till I convince you. So there is a place to fight for important theological truths. Absolutely, we must do that. Elders in particular are commanded to guard sound doctrine. So that is necessary. 
but let us do some real careful introspection about what is really motivating us in that effort. Um, yeah. Yeah. There's probably lots more that could be said about that. Uh, you know, removing the, the log from your own eye before you go and remove the sliver from, a, from your brother's eye. And um, I do think it's kind of tragic the way that we, I mean, we, I was talking about this with somebody this week. You know, you can go to, and I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to slam anybody, but you can go to some cities where <clears throat> you have First Baptist Church right here, and then across the street, Second Baptist Church. <laughs> like, really? You guys, you can't get along? You can't work that out? Whatever those differences are? Like, anyway. It's challenging. It is. Uh, and, and truth is worth fighting for. So don't misunderstand that. I'm not suggesting we just lay down and don't, don't uh, fight for these things. But the way that we do it needs to be carefully thought through. Okay, so I want to point something else out. Hopefully uh, you're, you're back in Ephesians chapter 4 now. One of the things that is terribly frustrating about the English language is that we do not have a uh, second person plural. Moose. What? Moose. We should, I mean, the closest we have is y'all. Yeah. So you, we lose this when we translate the Bible into English. And I don't want to diminish your English Bible. Your English Bible is wonderful. Read it. It's great. This is a small thing. But verse 30 says, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you, when you come across that word you, what do you immediately think of? Me. Yeah, yourself, right? But that actually should be y'all. <laughs> that is a second person plural. Use. Use guys. Use. <laughs> right? Uh, and another verse that we see this in that is missed on us that ties into this is it um, Philippians chapter 1 that says uh, and he who began a good work and you will be faithful to bring it to completion that's plural you all that's the church right we tend to kind of make it about me and it, it is you know and you are a part of the y'all but fundamentally it's about the church so do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you all were sealed for the day of redemption. Uh, this is a statement not about your own salvation and sealing in the Spirit, but the church. Okay? Um, this is the sealing of the body of Christ into the love of God. So, I have in my notes here, if we've been brought into fellowship with God through such sacrificial love, what could grieve the Spirit of God more than our sins against one another that wound his body and diminish his unifying work? This is why even Jesus will say in Matthew chapter 6 that if you're on your way to go present your gift at the altar, and on the way, you remember that you have an issue with your brother. Actually, that your brother has an issue against you. What should you do? Don't even go into the presence of God to offer your gift. Go first to be reconciled to your brother. Okay? So this is of the utmost importance in the community of love. The Christian community. 
Any other questions or thoughts about that, concerns? This is one of the reasons why we fight for this kind of thing at Maricopa Springs. Um, I think you hear me talk about this a lot. I, I don't want to hear us say, well, you know, I really don't like that person. I really don't, I wouldn't want to be in a small group with them. I really, you know, I don't want to be near them at church. Um, you know, they're here, but I, I, I just kind of tolerate them. I wish they weren't. I mean, maybe not in those exact words, but I've had those kinds of things said to me about other people. And my response is always, you need to go work that out. Like, your heart is not in a healthy place if that's how you feel about somebody. You need to go work that out. That doesn't mean that you have to be best friends. It just means you can't have, well, look at verse 31. Bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, malice. Those are the negative versions. But that doesn't cover it in the Christian teaching. Right? We're no longer obsessed with don't, 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 don't. It's no longer about don't steal your neighbor's donkey. It's about love your neighbor, right? If you love your neighbor, will you ever steal his donkey? If you never steal your neighbor's donkey, does that mean you love him? No. Do you see how this goes one way but not the other? So this is something I talk about a lot as well. You can actually keep the Ten Commandments and that doesn't prove that you love God. That was the problem with the Pharisees. But if you love God, what will you naturally do? Everything that pleases him. Or at least that will be the desire that you are after. Make sense? So, Paul gives us both sides of this. Bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander. Get all those away from you along with malice. And in case that wasn't clear enough, guys, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. And remember, embedded right in the middle of this, verses kind of 25 through 32, is this idea, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. These are the things that more than anything grieve him. So this is similar to Galatians chapter 5, 16 through 26. Uh, the fruit of the flesh compared to the fruit of the Spirit. Why don't we take a look at that? Maybe you're familiar with it, but I think it... Well, it fleshes it out more. Ha. See what I did there? Galatians 5, which is just a couple pages back to the left there. This is again the Apostle Paul picking up in verse 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Man, I'm just going to keep saying it. This is this operating system change, right? When you get the Holy Spirit, it's not just an upgrade. You're not like a better version of a fleshy person. You become a new person, a new creation. You become fueled by the Holy Spirit rather than fueled by sinful desire. So if you walk by the Spirit, if He is your fuel, then you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. The desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. These are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. But if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. That's the, the law, don't steal your neighbor's donkey. That's not what drives you, that's not what fuels you. You're not under that law. What are you under? You are under the Spirit that 
gives birth to love in your heart. Love for God that produces obedience. Love for others that produces self-sacrifice. Okay? Verse 19, now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. Verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. These things are unstoppable because they are the power of God at work in the heart of his people. So let's go back to Ephesians. Chapter 4. Bitterness, verse 31, let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander be put away from you along with all malice. So do you want to unpack any of these words? Think about them in more detail? Flesh them out a little bit more? So I know, I know, I know the bitterness thing. I know people that have said they've forgiven somebody for a long time. They've consented to say they've forgiven them, but they continue to harbor those things. You know, they've they brought up over and over. It's, it's continued to be brought up. Yeah. Is that really forgiven? That's the question. I know that's one of the big things with uh, bitterness that jumps up. Yeah. People usually don't like my answer to this question. Um, what? Stop. 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 Um, the reason I don't like my answer to this question is because we have so much therapeutic language that infects our thinking. And so we have things like boundaries and we have things like, um, you know, you, you need to cut that person off. They're unhealthy for you. They're toxic, these kinds of things. I want to be clear here. I don't think that God's intention is for us to go through life just suffering the same repeated abuse over and over and over again. Okay, so I'm not, that's not what I'm arguing for. But... When Peter comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, I think I'm a pretty forgiving guy. I forgive people seven times. Right? Think about our culture. You get what? Three strikes and you're out. If that. If that, yeah. if that right? <laughs> Peter's like, hey, they're doing the three strike thing, Jesus. I go, I go seven. Right. And what's Jesus' response to that? Seven times 70 times or seven times seven. There's some you know, debate about what was said there. The point is... It's not even that. that like, oh, I wasn't mad at this number. Right. So one plus that, I can help you. <laughs> right. The, the, the point of that teaching is how many times should you forgive somebody? At least one more. Right? Always at least one more time. Okay? And then he tells the parable of the unforgiving servant, which I think we've talked about in here. You know this parable. It has to do with uh, this man who owes a great debt to a king. It's like an unreasonable amount of money. It's billions of dollars. And the king says, I, I forgive you of it. Don't worry about it anymore. He goes out. He finds the guy who owes him five bucks and beats him up. And the king is enraged because here's a guy who'd just been given an unfathom, had been forgiven an unfathomable amount of money. And then what does he go and do? He goes and beats up another guy for just pennies. 
And Jesus ends that parable by, oh, he says, throw this man in prison until he pays the last cent. And then he says, and so my father will do for, to you if you are unwilling to forgive your brother from your heart. So this is a really difficult Christian ethic. But I would say that until you are to the point where you can act as if this person's sin against you is the very first time they have ever done it, you've not actually forgiven them. Is that even possible? Well, Jesus does say with God all things are possible. Stephen is a good example because people were throwing stones at him and he was praying for right. Like what's wrong with him? That's a really good example. Yep. Yeah. You know, I struggled with bitterness. Yeah. In recent years. And a couple of verses, you know, just kept being fed to me. One was in First Thessalonians in the very beginning there. It talks about our work work of faith. And so I pondered that and, and, and in context of forgiveness. And, and it occurred to me that my, my, uh, uh, my ability to forgive, to forgive, uh, rested in, in my faith in Christ, uh, uh, then giving me the ability to now act on forgiveness. Because it's one thing to say I forgive somebody, another thing to act on it. And, and, uh, and so the way I acted on it was. was prayer, praying for that individual that I was so bitter against, it was two individuals, and, and, but my prayers changed, my prayers started out with, hey, change on God, you know, you know, put them through something, right. you know, so they can see, yeah, so be more compassionate, but God changed my prayers to, no, you know, pray for me that I don't, that, that I don't judge them this way, right, that I don't have this uh, thing against them anymore. And what, what ended up happening is, I'm the one that got changed. My bitterness, God changed my bitterness to joy, changed my bitterness to forgiveness. That's good. And so now I, I, I can really truly feel I've forgiven these people. Uh, but it didn't really matter because Christ forgave me too. Yep. Right? Both first and foremost. Yep. You know? And that's really the direction that I think that the parable points us, okay? Um, this is an example of how many times my children have left their shoes by the door when I've asked them not to. At least a few more. Something like this, right? Now, let's let's just imagine that's a sin against me that they're guilty of that I am, you know, obligated to forgive them for. How many tallies would it take? To represent on this board how many times I have failed to do what God has asked me to do. Right? Like you'd have to fill in like every it would just have to be black. Again, all the walls in the room, right? So here's the problem why we don't forgive. Because this is what we look at. When what we should look at is, you know, this reality. Right? How could I possibly not forgive you for your sin against me if I really understood how much God has forgiven me for my sin? The statement around forgiveness has absolutely actually nothing to do with this person. Peter, you are thinking about the wrong thing if you're thinking about the fact you even have to forgive your brother. You need to think about the fact that you have been forgiven. And if you are thinking about that, what could you possibly withhold from somebody who wrongs you? 
And if you truly believe that God holds your heart and your safety and your well-being and your eternity and he loves you and he cares for you, then what risk could you make with your heart that would be a losing bet? No risk. None. Because in the end you will win. Now, I, I understand it's easy to stand here and teach this as an idea. It's much more difficult in practice, right? Take, for example, my little brother's family who is three-year-old drowned because the grandparents weren't watching him. How does a parent who is devastated losing their child turn to their parent and say, I forgive you, as if it never happened, when I have to live the rest of my life with the pictures of my three-year-old up on the wall, but I will never embrace them again, right? How is that possible? Well, only by grace. But I think it's possible by thinking not about those tallies, but about the grace you've received. Make sense? So bitterness, I think, is you keep focusing on this instead of focusing on the grace that you've given, you've been given. And it's interesting, the Bible says, let no root of bitterness grow up. Think about a plant in a crack that takes seed in a crack. You know what happens over time? It begins to destroy everything. It, it ruins the foundation. And so that's what bitterness will do over time. Uh, hopefully that was helpful. And, and we see it in verse 32, right? Forgiving one another. What does it say? Yeah, as God in Christ forgave you. So this is a, a weighty, weighty thing. But this illustration doesn't even really work because God doesn't even do the tallies. Every time you sin, the tally goes up like this, and you come in repentance to God, and he says what? I forgive you. And then you come back and you sin again, which we all do, and it's like, there's the tally. And God looks at that when you say, I repent, and he says, I forgive you. And at some point, if God had a therapist, his therapist would say, you need to get out of this relationship. <laughs> this is just abusive, and it's not going well, and you're going to get hurt. And God's like, no, I'm committed. And so he just keeps that process going. Praise God for that. And hopefully in time, as we grow in maturity, that process ends, and we don't abuse his grace. But that's how forgiveness works in the eyes of God, right? Isaiah says... Uh, though your rags or though your sins were as scarlet, I will make them white as snow. I will remove your sin from you as far as the east is from the west, and I will remember them no more. That's not a statement about God's inability to remember things. He forgets nothing. He just chooses not to keep a tally. Yeah, yeah, except for those who refuse repentance. Yeah. Yep. And that's why First John says, you cannot love God whom you cannot see unless you love your brother whom you can't see. That's simply a statement of what this new heart does. 
Because it has received love from God, it gives love to others. And if there's no love to give, it's because you haven't received it. I think we should uh, close and pray on prayer on that note. And um, please, let me remind you, there's no adult Sunday school next week. Why? Because there's no church. We will not be here. We will be camping. So please do not show up here at 845 next week. You will be sorely disappointed. There will be a sign telling you we're not here. Let me pray. Um, God, we thank you for your love, for your forgiveness, for your grace in our lives. And we thank you that it makes us into the same kind of people that Jesus was. That by your Holy Spirit, we can manifest these kinds of beautiful behaviors, kindness and tenderheartedness and forgiveness. And so we, we give you praise. And I ask that we would be people who are concerned with not grieving your spirit. Um, that instead we would desire to please you, that we would desire to uh, just live out this new life that you have given us. So Lord, would you continue that work that you're doing in us? We thank you for your faithfulness. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.